1 Timothy chapter 1 tonight. Timothy chapter 1. In a sin-cursed world, any effort to pursue something good is going to result in opposition. Consider Israel and their pursuit of the promised land. The Canaanites and the Malachites were not going to roll out the red carpet for them. Israel would possess the promised land only through much opposition. Whenever there's a pursuit of something good, there's going to be some opposition. Consider the Messiah's pursuit of saving our sins. Just because he was doing a good thing did not mean that his enemies were going to lay down for him. The world was not going to open up their arms and welcome him. From the time of his birth, King Herod wanted him dead. And as his ministry went public in in his early 30s, the Jewish religious leaders wanted him dead. Consider... Also, the the establishment of the local churches in the first century and how much opposition they received to wanting to to accomplish something good. You remember the story of Paul in Acts 19 when he first came to Ephesus, the city that that, uh, Timothy is pastoring. There, at that time, Paul had created a disturbance with his preaching of the gospel because his his converts were... uh, they stopped buying idols, and so it was cramping the idol maker, the idol making industry. And so, the town called the idol makers, idol makers together and said, "Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus but also in all of Asia, that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made without hands are no gods at all. Well, that's what we sell." And Paul saying that they're not gods at all. Not only is there danger that his, this trade of ours falls in disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be re- regarded as worthless. And that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Do you realize the implications of what is happening here? If the gospel that Paul is teaching continues to take root, then we're going to be put out of business, and our favorite god, the one that lives in our city, Her temple is going to be turned into disrepute. Any effort to pursue pursue good in a sin-cursed world is going to be met with opposition. Have you found that to be true in your Christian life? Have you been shocked by this? I mean, shouldn't it be true that if we do what's right, that, that we should be free from opposition? And yet we should not be surprised by this opposition because the gates of hell are warring against the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecute me, they will persecute you, John 15.20. Paul said that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12. The disciples said that it is through much tribulation that we will enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. And the same thing is true for this church here in Ephesus. The opposition against the gospel in the city of Ephesus was not going to just lie down without a fight. If Timothy and Paul and God wanted to see the gospel take root, If the work of Christ was going to continue, then someone was going to have to stand up 
against the opposition. After his opening greeting, Paul charges Timothy with his responsibility. Timothy, stay in Ephesus. Help the church fight against false teaching and teachers. The false teachers were trying to put unneeded burdens on the church by forcing them to obey the law from which they had been set free. Paul wanted them to know that by virtue of the gospel, Christians are no longer under the law. And that the only way that anyone could be freed from the bondage of the law was by grace. And that's Paul's story. We saw that last time. Paul says, I am a recipient of grace. Even though I was a blasphemer and a violent man, a persecutor, God showed me mercy. Paul had been opposed to the gospel. Paul was part of the opposition. And yet God showed mercy, even though he was the worst of sinners. And what Paul knew, and what we know, is that if there is going to be any victory in these false teachers' lives, that is, if these false teachers are actually going to come on the right side, then they needed the same thing that Paul needed. They needed grace. They needed the grace that comes from God, that comes freely from God, not based on any works which Paul or they had done. Let's read our text tonight, beginning in verse 18, 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is the word of God. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regarding in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I, I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So very simply, the point that Paul is making in this short paragraph is that we must fight the good fight. I get that from the end of verse 18. We must fight for the faith. And this fight <coughs> is a responsibility of each one of us as believers, absolutely. I'll talk about that, but... But the primary charge is given to whom? It's given to Timothy, the pastor of these people. And so I'm going to argue from the text that Paul is calling for the pastor to take on or to, we could say, lead the fight for the faith. So first, the responsibility of the pastor in verses 18 and the first part of verse 19, and then the shipwreck of the false teachers in the second part of the passage. So the responsibility of pastors is to lead the church in the fight for faith. To lead the church in the fight for faith. Paul leaves Timothy with the command. And he he picks up on something that he's already said in verse 5. In verse 18 he says, This command that I entrust to you. Well, what command are you talking about? Because in the immediate context there was no command. He's talking about the glory of the gospel and how it came and shaped him. There's no command there. So it seems that Paul is pointing back to what he gave in verses 3 and 5, that Timothy, you remain on in Ephesus and speak up to these false teachers. Don't let them continue in their error. I think it includes more than just keeping them from error or pointing out their error. It's also standing up for the truth. Because in verse 5, he says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So it's not just negative, that you're just constantly... Um, tearing down false doctrine. That's part of it. But you're also teaching true doctrine. 
Paul was given this charge as an apostle to promote and defend the gospel. And he's saying, I'm handing this responsibility on to you. I'm not there. I can't stand up for the gospel the same way that you can, Timothy. So here, this is your responsibility. I've entrusted this to you. Do the same as I would do. Do the same as Christ would do. You are his representative. Notice the certainty of this charge in verse 18. According to the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now these are not general prophecies that we might go back and read like we just read tonight from Daniel. Daniel's prophecy. Um, That's not what Paul has in mind very likely. that, That just anyone could apply to themselves. But notice the qualification there at the end. Concerning you. So according to the prophecies previously given concerning you, Timothy... And so this must be referring to the charge that God had given to Timothy to lead the flock of God. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. We see similar wording. It kind of helps us to see that, that Paul was talking about his calling to, to lead, his calling to be the pastor. Verse 14 of chapter 4, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. So God had given Timothy a charge to lead the flock of God. And Paul's saying, now, Timothy, remember that. Remember how the hands were laid on you, symbolizing that God's blessing was coming upon you, that the Holy Spirit was going to be in your work? According to those prophecies that you are the man for this job, then then do your job. Stand up against error. Stand up for truth. You are the one to lead this fight. The nature of fighting for the faith, Timothy was charged with pursuing what was good. That is, promoting and guarding the gospel. Fight the good fight. But in a sin-cursed world, as I mentioned earlier, the pursuit of good is going to be met with opposition. And so while this is a fight, it is a good fight because it has a good purpose. If Timothy was going to find success, he would have to fight for the faith. We don't like to think about the Christian life or about church even as a fight or a battle. But I think we do ourselves damage when we think it's all about roses and peace and puppy dogs, right? That's not what the church is all about necessarily. Now, obviously, we want to do what is keeping it with, that we want to do what is in keeping with peace. But not at the, not the exclusion of truth. That's why Paul says, "Fight for it. Fight for the faith." See, if you seek at, you seek peace at all costs, then you will give up the faith. Right? Do, do you know any ecumenical churches who have tried to do this? They've sought peace as their primary thing, not truth-based peace, not Bible-based peace, but just peace. So we're going to just try to make everyone happy. And in the process, they've abandoned the gospel. Paul's saying, fight for it. Don't give it up for the sake of some false peace. The fact is the gospel, the, the gospel does ultimately bring peace and love and happiness. Finally, it will do that. The gospel does promote even immediate peace and happiness. It does bring resolution to problems when handled properly. But but proponents of the gospel cannot lie down. 
preachers of the gospel cannot lie down. If we lie down, we will be walked over and the message of false teaching will take root in this church. Because there is a time coming when men will not endure sound teaching, but instead wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers that are in keeping with their own desires, their own sinful desires, their own godless desires. And so if Timothy doesn't do his job, he will be walked over. The gospel will be abandoned. If I don't do my job, the gospel will be abandoned. It's a fight for the faith. Third thing that we see here is the means for our faith. The means by which we fight and by which we fight well is to persevere in the faith and a good conscience. Notice at the the first part of verse 19. Let's look at the end of verse 18. That by them you fight the good fight. And then there's this this phrase, this um, participial phrase, keeping faith and a good conscience. So here are here's the means by which the pastor fights for the faith. By keeping the faith and a good conscience. He perseveres in the faith and perseveres in a good conscience. These are the weapons that God has given to him in order to, to take on this battle. And these, these weapons are primarily internal, aren't they? That is that he needs to guard his own heart and he has to make sure that he's working with a clean conscience. Isn't that interesting in contrast to the false teachers and what they're promoting? They're promoting this external conformity to a dead law. Instead of living by faith, the false teachers were living by works. Instead of listening to their conscience, they were ignoring their conscience. And they were suffering spiritual shipwreck, as we'll see in the next part of the verse. Some have rejected it. The implication of this reality is that the pastor cannot be a pushover. He has to be a man of conviction, a man who is willing to go to battle over what is right. He's not fundamentally a people pleaser. He's willing to do the hard, right thing even at the expense of losing the favor of key people. He has to be willing to fight the faith with with a good conscience. He has to be willing to persevere. So the responsibility of the pastor, and then the second part of the text, is about the shipwreck of the false teachers shipwreck of the the false teachers. At the end of verse 19, we see the nature of falling falling away, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. The nature of falling away is that a person hears the gospel and has a conscience that helps him distinguish between what is right and wrong, but that person turns away from the faith and rejects his conscience. He goes against what his conscience says. And that's what these false teachers have done. And in in exchange, they have sown sin and destruction, and so will they reap. Paul calls it spiritual shipwreck. He says they've suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now notice, what has suffered shipwreck? Is it the faith that suffers shipwreck or is it the individual person? What's the subject of suffered shipwreck there? 
some have rejected. It's a compound verb, right? Compound verb. Some have rejected and some have suffered shipwreck. So it's not the faith that suffered shipwreck. The, The faith is fine. It's the individual person who's suffered shipwreck. He has fallen away. Paul wants Timothy and the church at Ephesus to see that this is not just a theory of something that could possibly happen. He's saying this is a real threat of what's going on. In order to see this, Paul gives an example of falling away. In verse 20, he gives an example of two men who fell away. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. We don't know much about either one of these men, but we do see Hymenaeus again in 2 Timothy 2.17. And assuming this is the same Hymenaeus as here in 1 Timothy 1, Hymenaeus' error is that he is ungodly and he is given to empty chatter and teaching that people have already experienced their resurrection. There's no need to look for the future resurrection. There's no. This is all that there is. We don't know... We, we know even less about Alexander. Alexander was a common name during this time. But he could be the same man in 2 Timothy 4.14 who was a coppersmith who brought spiritual harm to Paul. And Paul says, watch out for him. But the fact is, is that there, there are two real-life examples in the church at Ephesus. People who they knew probably were elders, as I've suggested earlier. Probably elders in the church who at one time embraced the faith, at one time embraced the truth of God, at one time made a profession of faith, were baptized, were established in the church as legitimate leaders. And over time they turned away from the faith. They suffered spiritual shipwreck. What is the responsibility of the church and the church leaders to those who have done this, who have fallen away. Paul gives the answer through his own example of what he did with these two men at the end of verse 20. The response to those who fall away. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So we see two things in this verse 20 here. We see the nature of of Paul's strong response and then the reason for the strong response. First, the nature of the response. Paul says that he hands them over to Satan. So what does this mean? Does Paul shout out to the spiritually shipwrecked person in front of the whole church, I declare you to be a child of Satan? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because here in the context, Paul is talking to Corinthians about what they should do about an immoral member who is sleeping with his stepmom. And he uses the same language that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 1 to hand over to Satan. And so if we can understand the context and understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5, I think we can understand what's going on in 1 Timothy 1. In the context, Paul is calling the church to remove this man from the membership. So look at verse 5. I don't have time to go through the whole section, but 
I want you to notice at least this connection. I have decided to deliver such a one, this immoral man, to Satan. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Again, just to show you that this is talking about church membership and about church discipline. Verse 13, but those who are outside, God judges. So you remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So this man ought not to be a member of the church. He's not living according to what he has committed himself to to do. So you need to remove him. He, he doesn't represent Jesus. He's not a Jesus follower in the way that he acts right now. And notice the goal here in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 5. So that his spirit may be saved. Sounds like Paul has a positive view in mind, just like he does in 1 Timothy. Go back to 1 Timothy. Notice in verse 20, I've handed him over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So he's saying, remove this person from the church. I'm handing him over to Satan. I'm removing him from the church so that he will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, why would Paul ever do this? I mean, wouldn't it be better for the individual if he stayed in the membership of the church? Well, before we can answer that, we need to consider what it means for a person to be in the realm of Satan. What does it mean when Paul is actually handing someone over to the realm of Satan? Well, within the context of church membership, there's a kind of protection that God provides. Because our lives are checked against the preaching of the gospel. And our lives are checked with the help of other members' personal accountability with us. And the, the members as a whole, the whole body. It's helping to hold us personally, spiritually accountable to God. It's not that Satan is unable to attack church members. So don't think of it like the church is this special group that is, has a nice barrier around it. It can't be attacked by Satan. But think about how much more he can attack when you're not a church member. Right? If you're not a church member, you're just kind of wandering around. You've been handed over to the realm of Satan. Who's going to challenge your sin? Who's going to preach the word to you? If you haven't made a commitment to be in church, if you're not attending church, who's going to encourage you to do that? It's not church member church members of which you're a part you see in that sense satan is limited in his ability to attack the church and we know that that satan does have some um or, or we do have some protection against satan because the gates of hell will not prevail against christ's church but satan is less limited let's say it that way in his ability to attack the world because that's his realm 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's called the God, small g, of this world. He's called in Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air, who is now working in the sons of disobedience. So to hand a person over to Satan and his realm is a serious thing. Now the question is why? Why would... Why would... Paul, Timothy, us ever bring about a terrible demise as this? Why would we ever want to hand someone over to Satan? 
Look at the answer at the end of verse 20. So that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Remember what blasphemy is? It's misrepresenting God. Paul called himself this in verse 13. I was a blasphemer. But when he came to understand the true gospel, he knew what was true and what God taught. So how is it that being handed over to Satan, being removed from the church, could teach a person not to blaspheme? You would think the opposite would be required. That is, that they not be handed over to Satan. That they remain in the church, and that will teach them not to blaspheme. But here's here's the thing. Apparently, a genuine believer, when he is removed from a church, maybe not immediately, but at some point, will learn... He will realize that his teaching or his lifestyle is so displeasing to God that this church, who claims to represent Jesus himself, has disavowed them as a legitimate Jesus follower. For a genuine believer, that should wake them up, shouldn't it? I mean, think about yourself in that situation. If you're thinking rationally... now. Here, here's the challenge is when we, we're on the other end of that, we're being removed from the church, what do we immediately do? We start to justify our actions. We start to demonize everything that's going on in the church. We, we, we talk about all the bad things that they do and that they overlook. That way we can look better to ourselves. Well, that's not what believers do. They may do that for a time, but believers actually look into their hearts and they cry out to God saying, God, this people call themselves the group of Jesus followers. Could they all be wrong? And only I be right? Or could I be wrong about my own heart? Have I turned away from the faith? And so in that way, when, when we follow through on this process, handing a person over to the realm of Satan through church discipline, God providentially uses that to push a genuine believer back to repentance, back into fellowship with the church. God is serious about holiness within the church. And so He will not allow someone who's living immorally to remain part of a local group of Jesus followers. He removes them for the sake of Christ and what the church represents because if we have one person who's living like an unbeliever or teaching like a false teacher then they're in effect representing Christ as a church that's who we represent and so it doesn't look proper it doesn't look right when Christ is being misrepresented to the watching world persons also removed for the sake of the church so that the rest of the church know what is commended and what is condemned. We don't want to blur the line of distinction between who's in and who's out. Who are the true Jesus followers and who are not. And so when a person is blatantly living like the world, they should not be a part of our church. Obviously, they're given opportunities to repent. This is not our first step. I, I don't have time to go into all that, but, but Matthew 18 is a good place to, to look. We also remove the person from the church to the realm of Satan for the sake of the watching world. We don't want them to be confused about what a true Christian is. There's all sorts of confusion about what a true Christian is already. We don't want them to 
to be confused about what a Christian looks like. And we also remove this person for the sake of the person. Like it says here, so that they'll be taught not to blaspheme. So like 1 Corinthians 5, so that that their soul will be saved on the day of Jesus Christ. So that this actually turns out to be a good thing. If, If a genuine believer is removed from a church, then he will return. Not necessarily to this church. Okay, don't don't think it's you know our little cult and and once they leave here they're not a Christian. What I'm saying is that they will return to following Christ at some church, or or even better back at ours. Think about what kind of effect being removed from this church would have on you. It would do one of two things. It would either sober you wake you up to the seriousness of your sin or it would harden you. That you would become embittered to us and the doctrine of this church and I would say to Christ. So it's either going to sober you or harden you. And that's part of the point. We want to have a clear line of distinction. So Paul recognizes that this is a very possible reality. That is that someone could actually turn back. That these false teachers could receive the grace that Paul had received if, if, if they would first be handed over to Satan, which is what Paul led the church to do. All right, let me give you um, two principles tonight and a couple ways to apply them. First, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. We need to recognize afresh that we are in a battle we need to stop getting worried over petty issues and fighting with, with one another over things like personal preferences. We are in a war. There's no time to complain about the color of our uniform or the blandness of our food. It's time to fight. And too often our churches are full of bickering and infighting over the stupidest, inconsequential issues And we should be unified around a common purpose. We should be unified around fighting a a common enemy. We should be figuring out how we can do the most good in the battle that our commanding officer has called us to. Our commanding officer has not called us to shed physical blood but we must recognize that we do have real enemies. That there are people who are empowered by demons themselves. Who teach the doctrine of demons. We cannot miss this reality. If we're going to accomplish good in a sin-cursed world, we must expect opposition. I mean, of all people, are we going to be carried to the clouds on flowery beds of ease? And others fought and sailed through bloody seas. We cannot miss this fact. We are in a real spiritual battle. Too often we take the church too lightly. Too often we take spiritual things too lightly and focus on things that are inconsequential. We need to be focused on the battle. Every day I wake up, there is a battle for my soul. Every day I wake up, there is a battle for this church to continue to exist. 
Satan would love to destroy this church. Satan would love to, to suck the life out of your soul. If we don't recognize this, we have already lost. The second principle is that the pastor is charged with the responsibility to lead in the fight for faith. That means that this text is primarily directed at me, as most of 1 Timothy is. Right? What you're receiving from 1 Timothy is, is secondary implications or secondary um, applications. Certainly there are principles that apply to all of us. But primarily this is written to a pastor. That he would stand up for the faith. So the primary application is for me. But you help in this fight. I lead in the fight, but you support in the fight. You are engaged in the fight. So let me just give you a couple ways in which you engage and support um, in the fight. First, recognize that, that I am one of the chief targets of God's enemies. That is, if Satan were to have his way with our church, if he really did want to destroy our church, who would he start with? History verifies that Satan has found a number of ways to take a pastor down, getting him to embrace immorality getting him to embrace false doctrines, to focus on the minors instead of the majors. Getting him discouraged. Getting him to burn out from doing too much. Getting too discouraged because of all the workload that he has to carry. Or he could get a, a pastor to fall through pride or money or any other number of idols. The kind of challenges you face are the kind of challenges that I face. The difference is that very likely Satan's would love to see me taken down. And so he very likely has a more concentrated approach on my life and perhaps my family's life so that he can get me to give up in the fight for the faith. So the first task for you in helping support our fight for the faith and my leadership in that is to recognize that I am one of the chief targets of God's enemies, particularly in this church. Second, you help by, I said I don't have it on there, but help by fighting, uh, you help me in the fight for faith Um, by first caring for my soul. So you support me in the fight that I lead against the enemy by caring for my soul. How do you care for my soul? What's the primary way that you can care for my soul? Pray for me. If it's true that I am a key target of the devil, then I can only overcome him by the power of Jacob. No, by the power of God. And so that pray that I would grow in humility and dependence on God. Pray that I would submit myself to the Word first of all. Pray that I would apply the Scriptures to my life before I call you to do the same. Pray that I would stand up against those who contradict the faith with courage, with boldness, even when I don't feel like it or when I think it would be better not to. 
you help in the fight for faith by caring for my soul. Secondly, you help in the fight for the faith by caring for your own soul. So here's one of the chief ways that you can help in the fight for the faith. And here's a big duh statement. Don't be an enemy. When I say enemy, I'm not saying an enemy of me primarily. I'm, I'm in the infantry with you. Don't be an enemy of God's army. Don't be an enemy of the cause for Christ. And the only way that you can do that is by caring for your own soul. Praying for yourself. Getting other people's people to pray for you. Guarding your heart with all diligence. Continuing to pursue holiness. Care for your soul. This is how you help in the fight. And then third, pretty obvious here, you support me in my lead to fight for the faith by caring for the souls of others. That is that you're not just concerned about your own soul and about my soul, but with the souls of every believer in our church. That you pursue them and call them to repentance when they defect from the faith. You don't seek to just pull out all the negative things, but you encourage them. When it's clear that they have turned away from the faith, or at least they have, they have blatantly lived like an unbeliever, then you as a congregation need to remove them from the membership. Obviously, I'm going to help lead in that, but, but you are the ones responsible to, to make the vote. You're the re- ones responsible to go to the person first. If they fail to repent, take another person or two. Then if they fail, bring it to the church. You go through the process. But you help support the fight for the faith by pursuing other people's souls, pursuing purity in other people. And again, before we can do this, we've got to take the log out of our own eyes. That's why I, I said we need to watch out for our own souls first. The greatest peace that we will ever enjoy is the peace that grows out of the soil of doctrinal unity. That's the kind of peace we want here. But peace in a sin-cursed world just like peace in, in a highly conflicted area of the world does not come without much opposition. And so we must be willing to fight for the faith. We must be willing to promote the truth and to pursue righteousness. And when someone rises up, even from our own number, as Paul predicted would happen, someone rises up who defects from the faith, we must have the courage and conviction to stand up for something greater than our temporal and artificial peace. And that is the truth of the Gospel that we love, that that Christ died for. This Gospel comes to us by grace and it unites us. It shows us the line of distinction between who's in and who's out daunting responsibility that we have but it is our responsibility and we need to take it seriously we must fight for the faith let's pray Father it is sobering to be reminded that Christian life is not a life of ease sometimes we think that when we get saved all of our problems will go away it's not true we remember that Jesus said that our that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
and yet they're still a yoke and they're still a burden. So while it's easier than what we would be experiencing if we were unbelievers, we still have a yoke to bear. We still have a burden to carry. Sometimes it feels like the weight of the world is on our shoulders trying to hold up, stand up, stay faithful in this battle for the faith, this battle for truth. It would be so easy like driving down the freeway at 2 o'clock in the morning with much needed sleep just to close our eyes and to get the sleep that we need. But we need to stay awake. We need to stay alert. We need to be sober. The consequences are detrimental if we fall asleep. Same thing is true in battle. We cannot give up. We cannot lay down. We cannot give up our position. We need to continue to pursue righteousness and holiness and ward out the evil and false teaching and we need to do it with your strength thankful for a group of believers who are committed to these same things and who have worked to support me in the leadership that you have entrusted to me to fight for this faith Lord I could not do it without them I could not do it without you so continue to use each person here to stand up for truth to guard their own soul, to to support me in my work, and also to watch out for the souls of others. Lord, we, we love to be a part of your army. We'd love to enjoy the spoils now, all of them. But the war is not over. We have a lot of work to do. And so until that time, give us the strength to continue to fight. Help us to recognize that our greatest enemies are not individuals. In fact, they're not at all. They're not flesh and blood. They are demons. They are people who are empowered by demons in some some cases. People who are fulfilling the, the desires of Satan. Help us to see that and to put on the whole armor that you have given so that having done all, we will be able to stand. May we depend on you through this process and find the peace and the unity that is consistent with the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name.